Dante Moore is an Oregon Duck, and he's not the only impact transfer that Dan Lanning and company have added right now. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked On Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day and your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. If you have not already, please like, comment, subscribe, rate, and review. Please and thank you wherever you listen to or watch this show, which today is brought to you by Prize Picks. Go to prizepicks.com slash locked on. Use code locked on for a first deposit match up to $100. Daily fantasy sports made easy. So Oregon's got Dante Moore. Oregon's got two other transfers that we're going to talk about today on the show. Sometimes I wonder, once the season ends, once there are no more games, what does one discuss on a podcast such as this? And then the news keeps rolling in and I realize, oh yeah, yeah, those are the sorts of things that we talk about. So Dante Moore, let's just do a quick timeline recap here. He verbally commits to the Ducks in July of 2022 for the class of 2023 as uh, as he was, according to a lot of sites, the number one overall quarterback recruit in the cycle. He then uh, decommits and flips to UCLA in December, right around National Signing Day after Kenny Dillingham, post-2022 uh, Civil War, went down to take the head coaching job at Arizona State. He'd been his primary recruiter. He goes to UCLA. He has a season in which he throws a few too many interceptions to hold on to the starting job. And now he is right back to where he once verbally stated he was going to begin his career. Dante Moore looks like he'll be your Oregon starting quarterback in 2025. So Dylan Gabriel's in, he'll be the starter for this year. Dante Moore is in, he'll likely be the starter in 2025. This is a perfect fit. I did not always feel this way about Dante Moore. In the context of him starting in 2024, I didn't think that was the best option for the Ducks. I still believe that to be the case. But if you're talking about 2025 and him developing behind a veteran quarterback like Dylan Gabriel, I don't know that there's a more perfect spot for Dante Moore to be. So I don't know if this will satisfy the Oregon fans who you know want to have uh, a developmental quarterback or someone who comes in from the high school ranks and you know is a duck for a couple of years and waits his turn like Ty Thompson was going to. But Dante Moore is going to get that chance and. I think that Ty Thompson could have had that chance potentially, but he's running out of years of eligibility. So Dante Moore is not. Now, one question that I'm sure people are, are going to ask, because I've already been asked it before, is, is he going to redshirt next year? And I don't think he will. I don't think he will. I don't think he needs to. I think that he's someone who wants to eventually make it to the NFL. So he wouldn't probably use that extra year of eligibility. I think that you know if he's Oregon starter in 2025, he could in that year alone bolster himself to be an NFL prospect. If he does well, but not well enough to maximize his draft potential, he could come back in 2026 and and, and start if he wants to, I suppose. But I don't see him redshirting to add another extra year of college eligibility. I think he's, you know, he's got a better arm than Dylan Gabriel and projects as a better uh, potential NFL prospect there, but he has to develop and that is what he's going to do. And that's what he's going to do in an offense that has uh, developed great quarterbacks or produced, I should say, great quarterback seasons. And we're going to get to see just how Will Stein is able to develop a young quarterback. But I mean, the early returns with this guy are really good. You look at the quarterback that he had uh, a year ago, Frank Harris at UTSA, veteran guy, had a lot of success. Bo Nix this year, a lot of success. 
He'll have Dylan Gabriel in 2024, Dante Moore for 2025. Here's the other reason I feel like this is such a perfect fit for the Ducks. The backup quarterback situation never matters until it does. You don't think about who's your backup quarterback until suddenly your starter gets dinged up. And then you're going, hey, who's our backup quarterback? Well, Dante Moore, I don't think is ready to be a high-level starter right now. But is he a high-level backup? Absolutely. A guy with that much talent and real in-game experience? Now, it's you know the old line I've brought up on the show before, uh, Loki in Infinity War. If you consider failure experience, I consider experience experience, which is an all-time line and always bears repeating here on the show. He is someone who, if Dylan Gabriel had to miss a game, for instance, you know, depending on who it's against, I'd feel reasonably conf- confident in Dante Moore's ability to go out there, start the game, and ultimately win it. Now, are either of these guys, Dylan Gabriel, Dante Moore, good enough to, you know, be Heisman contenders or, you know, feel like they win a game on their own? I don't think so, no. The good news is I feel good about Oregon's offensive line, which got bolstered uh, with with an addition that I'll get to here in just a moment. And I feel good about you know where Oregon is trending defensively. There are still pieces that uh, need to be inserted into the puzzle because they lost several from this year. But I think they're trending well on that side of the ball. I think the coaching staff is clearly good defensively. I, I think that all of this makes a lot of sense. It makes sense for Dante Moore. It makes sense for Oregon. And it just puts Oregon on really solid footing to not have to worry about the quarterback position. Like if Gabriel has to go out just for a few plays, you don't have to come in and just hand the ball off with Dante Moore. You can call a couple of, you know, perhaps more rudimentary, but still you can throw the ball. You can call some pass plays. And I think that's a good thing for the Ducks. And, you know, I I always say in the context of Oregon football, the best backup quarterback is Brian Bennett. When Brian Bennett came into the game, There was a drop-off, but was there still a baseline level of production? Yes. And I think that Dante Moore in this offense, I think he's perfect for Will Stein's offense. I really do. You know, a pro-style pocket quarterback who has mobility, but it's not necessarily a feature of his game. I think that's perfect for for what Will Stein does offensively. And I think the way that he gets the ball out on the perimeter and makes some defined reads and throws and, you know, gives a lot of easy options. I I think that'll help Dante Moore kind of get his confidence back to where, you know, it needs to be for him to maximize his potential. And I think learning from a guy in Dylan Gabriel, who's going into his sixth year uh, of college football is a tremendous, tremendous asset for a guy who was starting at UCLA and clearly wasn't ready to do so. And, And, you know, he showed so much, he has so much talent, and has so much potential that Chip Kelly said, yeah, we want to start him over Ethan Garbers because I thought he'd won the job from him. But then he lost it back, and Garbers was clearly a little bit better, and Dante Moore's got a higher ceiling than Garbers. Uh, Dante Moore's got a lower floor. But right now, that doesn't matter because he's set to be Oregon's backup, and that's a pretty talented backup. And, uh, you know, what was once thought to be Oregon's quarterback of the future is once again looking to be Oregon's quarterback of the future. Just goes to show you. This applies to fans as well, and fans should certainly remember this. Everywhere you go, don't create a negative impression with a kid for a particular school. If he chooses another program, wish him well. Wish him well. Don't leave him with any semblance of negativity because you never know what's going to happen in the portal world. And it's hard to have predicted what was going to happen with Dante Moore here, but This is all working out in Oregon's favor. Oregon has now brought in two of the top 10 24-7 sports-rated quarterbacks 
in in this 2024 recruiting cycle via the portal. So I think they are in a really, really good spot, both for 2024 and 2025. I will say, and drop all your questions in the YouTube comments or on X, formerly known as Twitter, as well, at Smalls underscore 55 or at Locked on Ducks, DMs and mentions wide open. You can also have priority mailbag access over at Subtext as well, free 14-day trial, then it's just $5 a month. If you have questions about anything like this, by all means, let me know. One that I think is pretty obvious is, what does this mean for Austin Novosad? I'll be shocked if he doesn't transfer. And that's, again, you talk about portal casualties, that would certainly be one of them. Novosad's a talented kid. I think he can be a power five starting quarterback. I, I likened him coming out of high school to Darren Thomas. You know, can he be an above average you know, a game manager, which Cam Newton, of course, has uh, put in the news lately. But like, can he be, you know, a game manager plus? That's what I described Darren Thomas and Jeremiah Masoli as. I think Thomas was better. But I think both of those guys, neither were Heisman contenders, but they were above average quarterbacks. Yeah, I think Novosad can be that sort of guy. But if I had to choose between Austin Novosad and Dante Moore, I agree with the scouting community, which is Moore has got more potential. Doesn't mean Novosad doesn't have any. Don't be surprised if Novosad uh, ends up entering the transfer portal. But plenty of other Ducks have entered the transfer portal, and, and some have entered the portal to arrive to Oregon, a running back and an offensive lineman who Dylan Gabriel will be playing with as of next season. As of this very moment and every moment before and after it, I'm recommending you go check out eBay Motors because eBay Motors, here's how they operate. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts, that's a lot, for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your right every time or your money back. With eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices that you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Just like Will Stein might find it easy to develop Dante Moore into that perfect five-star caliber quarterback. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. eBay guaranteed fit, only available to U.S. customers. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Plenty more transfers have been coming to the Ducks. I'm sure we'll even hear some more. Nothing official yet on Kobe Savage, at least that I've seen or heard, but that's still a move. The Kansas State safety, two-time all-conference performer the last couple of years, that's expected to happen. But there are a couple names uh, that we should be aware of here as Duck fans because there's a running back and there's an offensive lineman. So let's start with the ball carrier, Jay Harris. So he was uh, at Division II Northwest Missouri State a season ago, which is just a quintessential Division II college name. They had a pretty good team over there. In 11 games, he had 100 or more yards in every single game. He went for over 1,400 yards on the ground and 14 touchdowns. That was a pretty good season. And he was a first-team AP All-American at the Division II level. So I, I've seen a lot of times over the years – Division one FCS players make the jump or JUCO players make the jump. You don't hear of division two and three guys quite as often. And so this is why this is a little bit of a unique situation. I do wonder, you know, landings from Missouri. I wonder if he's, you know, got any ties back there. I think he brought in a coach on staff, uh, you know, when he, when he first arrived 
that you know was from that area. I don't know if there are any ties as to how they found out about this guy, but I, I don't look at him, both his physical profile and his film and highlights, and think, yeah, that guy was at D2 for a reason. I think it's closer to a guy of, what was the reason he was at D2 exactly? So here's the interesting thing about him. First of all, he's got multiple years of eligibility left. So might get used to hearing the name Jay Harris running back. Second of all, he's 6'2", 215 pounds. Interestingly enough, Dante Dowdell, who just transferred out of the Oregon running back room, was, drumroll please, coming out of high school, 6'2", 215 pounds. So this is, I think, both in roster and running style, a pretty, you know, direct filler spot. You can debate as long as you'd like as to who's going to be better. I think both guys can be really good. You know, one thing that I like about Harris, he's got great lateral movement for a guy of that size. I don't know if he quite has the high-end speed of Dante Dowdell because that is the sort of thing that can get you, you know, really noticed by uh, by Division One schools and by major recruiting services. I don't know why he was at a Division Two school, but I think he's going to fit in just fine. And I don't expect him to be a big contributor to the running back room next year, but I think that he adds some needed depth. You know, a guy who's got some experience uh, playing some level of college football, of course. And you know, now the running back room looks something like Noah Whittington, Jordan James, uh, Jaden Lamar. And then you've got uh, Dejon Riggs coming in as well from the high school ranks, Bucky Irving off to the NFL. And then you add in Jay Harris and that's a sufficiently deep running back room, at least in my view. Now, this question came in from John. Again, YouTube, Twitter, subtext, always to get questions answered here on the show. Spencer, regarding Oregon running backs, why does it seem that Oregon never recruits or brings in big, strong running backs in the 230 to 240 range. Just as a reminder, Jay Harris is 215 pounds. I always remember Jonathan Stewart, who was big, strong, fast running back. We seem to always bring in running backs that are in the 190 to 200-pound range. I'm sure in the high school ranks or in the transfer portal, there are big, strong, and fast running backs available, yet we don't ever seem to recruit those people. Why? I like where your head's at, John, thinking at that level of detail. I don't agree with your premise. Royce Freeman was kind of a tank. Thomas Tyner was a beast. Now, in the past years, you've certainly seen guys on the smaller side of things. I don't think there is a right or wrong way to recruit a style of running back, or I don't think there's a right or wrong style to recruit. I think it depends on your scheme, but I think that what Carlos Lachlan's running backs have all had in common, whether that's Bucky or Noah or Jordan James, or I think Jay Lamar's kind of got this as well. I think Dowdell had this too, is... They rarely go down on first contact because they have such tremendous balance and lower body strength. I think those are the traits that he's looking for more so than, well, I want guys of a certain size, of a certain makeup, of uh, you know, a certain style that will fit with you know this particular player, this particular scheme. But I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it. You know, I don't think having a, a diverse array of running backs and styles in your room is a bad thing at all. You know, I think back to the Chip Kelly days and that first backfield was LaMichael and Kenyon, same guy, right? LaMichael was of course a little better in college, though we later learned Kenyon was also very, very good. And then you had LeGarrette Blunt as kind of the hammer back, the short yardage guy. You look at the backfield last year, right? It was Bucky and Noah Whittington and Bucky was your, you know, fighting, scrapping, uh, you know, fine yards where they 
weren't always there sort of guy. Noah Whittington was your one cut downhill runner and Jordan James was your short yardage guy. And that's just kind of what they were. And then this year, right? Whittington went down and it was much more a hot hand between Bucky, who had some amazing games, most notably Washington State. You had Jordan James, who had some really, really good games as well. So I, I think that when you're looking at the running back position or any skill position, I, I don't think there's one guy you need to recruit. You know, I, I just think you want to bring in a guy who's most effective. And, and and by the way, tough to compare running backs, generally speaking, to Jonathan Stewart. That guy was a five-star recruit. He's one of the two or three best running backs I think Oregon has had in the last uh, – since the turn of the century, since I can really remember watching Oregon football. Like, LaMichael would be one. Jonathan Stewart is probably number two. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone I'd put above him. At least in my lifetime, I, I I wouldn't. You know, I mean, Jeremiah Johnson was great. Freeman was good. I was always high on Thomas Tyner. Uh, of course, Bucky is amazing, and uh, a lot of guys have been really good. But those are probably the two best running backs of all time. And you know, they played essentially in the same system. It, it's about having, I think, certain underlying characteristics. You know, like the ability to cut laterally or the ability to you know work in a spread scheme. And you know, Lamichael was so perfect for that particular scheme, but you know, when you're a power running team, Mario Cristobal wanted a guy more like CJ Verdell that's not afraid to contact and wants to run through guys and just, you know, kind of plow ahead and establish that physicality. So uh, I, I think that it's scheme dependent, but I think for Lachlan, there is a consistent theme here. And, and when you watch Jay Harris, he's got these, this trade as well. Carlos Lachlan wants dudes that can stay balanced, which makes them tough to tackle. And I think that Jay Harris has that, and that's why he's a fit here. But good question. This one came in from Rick. Jordan James averaged 7.1 yards per carry this year as RB2. Do you think he is RB1 next year? This is this is tough because I I really like Jordan James. I was always high on him. I, I said at one point before the season, before this season started, like I feel like Jordan James can be more than just a short yardage guy. And this year, Oregon needed him to be more than that. And he was, and he was really, really good. And if Jordan James is RB1 next year, I think it's because Whittington doesn't come back healthy. It's easy to get caught up in the moment and recency bias and say, oh man, James was so good. He's going to be the lead guy. If Whittington comes back healthy, he was ahead of James on the depth chart for a reason because he too is good in short yardage and he too makes great lateral cuts. And I think he's got a little bit more top end speed than Jordan James does, but I, I think James is slightly better in the short yardage situations, but that's why I want to have them both. And if Jaden Lamar is kind of the you know third back in there who catches passes every now and then, I'm on board for that. I think that's a really really strong running back room. And you know if if Whittington is not fully healthy and James is RB one, guess what? The backfield is going to be just fine. And, and I think that's been, I think Oregon like very quietly is running back university at least at the college level, right? You can talk about how successful the, those guys have been in the NFL and whatnot. That's fair. But when was the last time Oregon didn't have really good running backs? I, I, I legitimately, like the worst time of running backs would be like CJ Verdell and Travis Dye. And guess what? Travis Dye was our entire offense in 2021. And CJ Verdell was a Pac-12 championship MVP, or, yeah, MVP in 2019 and both guys were ran for a couple thousand yards in their careers and, and were just wildly productive. I don't think they were the most high-end guys, but 
if those are your least productive running backs, running back University West, that would be the University of Oregon, full stop. All right, there was another transfer that Oregon picked up before I get to a couple of mailbag questions here. That transfer's name is Matthew Bedford. He comes over as an interior offensive lineman from Indiana. Next year will be his sixth season of college football. He's been in Bloomington for the last five playing for the Hoosiers, and their coach uh, was relieved of his duties. They made a change there, and he's going to play his final year of college football uh, as a sixth-year player with the Ducks. He made 38 starts in 41 games whilst at Indiana. He had a PFF grade just under 70. He was the highest graded offensive lineman that that the Hoosiers had a season ago, which isn't saying a ton if it was just under 70, but that's a respectable grade, right? 70 is kind of the threshold for, you know, what you'd consider to be a, a good grade, like 70 to 80, good player, 80 to 90, above average player, well above average, 90 and above elite of the elite, creme de la creme, best of the best. So, you know, he was just under 70. That's solid. Like, that's a pretty good grade. He has played all spots along the offensive line in his career except center. Now, most of his starts have come at guard, but this sort of positional versatility has been invaluable to Oregon over the last couple of years, and they're continuing with that trend. So Bedford has made starts at left tackle, right tackle, left guard, and right guard. He was at right guard last year for Indiana. That's where I figure he slots in. I think it's pretty unlikely that a sixth-year player who also was previously committed to going to Colorado but now says his recruitment is done and he's coming to Eugene to be a duck, I think a guy like that who's played that much football and who was going to play for the Buffs, I don't think he comes to Oregon without some some kind of guarantee that he's going to be a starter. So I imagine – that that is where he slides in at the right guard spot to replace Steven Jones, which is ironic because Jones a season ago was also a sixth year player. And so swapping out one super experienced guy for another, I I think is a good move for the ducks, but the ability to move him around, I think is what makes him, you know, even more appealing. And one question that I thought about when this commitment came down, which kind of came out of nowhere was, well, what does this mean for Caden Green? So Caden Green is a a really, really highly regarded interior offensive lineman from Oklahoma who Oregon has, you know, reportedly been after for a while now. I don't know if it means they won't go after him. What I do know is it means they don't need to go after him if they don't want to. They still could if they feel that he's better than Marcus Harper. But Harper's been a starter the last couple of seasons and I think got much better at run blocking this year after being just okay a season ago. And he's always been an elite pass blocker. So I I, I don't feel like that's a position of need. And I think the backups that you have there are are also more than capable. You know, the Davey Uli's of the world uh, who in his limited playing time, I think has been quite good. I don't think Oregon needs Caden green, but again, you never know when injuries are going to happen. So and there are other interior offensive linemen that, uh, that that are on the Ducks roster right now as well. So I don't think they need to get Caden Green. If they do, great. Then the offensive line is looking absolutely stacked. But right now, I'd say the starting offensive line next year, if you ask me today, which is what I'm doing to myself, of course, I'd say left tackle Connerly, left guard Harper, Poncho at center. I, I think you'd probably have Bedford at right guard and then Johnny Cornelius right tackle. 
And I think that's a really good unit. I think that's another really, really good unit. So I, I, I like this move. I'm always a fan of, of getting veteran players. And, you know, maybe they still get Caden Green. And, uh, you know, as Luke Moga tweeted out, when Dante Moore committed, our uh, three-star quarterback commit in the 2024 cycle, iron sharpens iron. So uh, the more talented guys you got, the more I'm, uh, I'm on board with it. Let's go back into the mailbag here. Uh, YouTube comments, Twitter, always subtext as well, where you can get priority. This from our boys. Four, five, three, nine. Do you see more high school three and four star quarterbacks going to a lower level college to build their resume to transfer later after getting experience? No, I, I, I do not. You also need to define lower level. Like are four star quarterbacks going to suddenly commit out of high school to FCS programs? No, I do not believe so. Three star quarterbacks and frankly, the occasional four star, but mostly three star guys have committed to group of five schools, you know, Mountain West, Sunbelt, Conference USA, American. They've been doing that for a long time. And I don't expect that to change at all. The reason is that when those guys end up playing their careers elsewhere at the end, it's oftentimes because they were once coveted by a power five FBS school. And so you know, I, I, I do play by play for Southern Utah, for those who don't know, which is a Division One FCS school. And one thing that is really prevalent across FCS college football right now are FBS drop downs, our power five drop downs, particularly at the quarterback position. Over the last couple of years, there have been uh, no less than eight to 10 guys who, you know, I've uh, put on my spotting boards who I notice are drop downs from schools like Tennessee or Washington State or, you know, FBS G5, like Middle Tennessee, or places like that. It's super, super common. And I think that for those guys coming out of high school, they feel that they are talented enough to start at that level. And I don't think that there's as big of an advantage or as big of a market for quarterbacks coming up from the FCS level as there is for an FBS dropdown like that. So I think to play their hand in the strongest possible fashion is actually best for them to go to a power five school, see how that program operates, learn from, you know, a high caliber coaching staff potentially, and then see what sorts of teams are you know, going to go after you if you end up not playing there or, you know, can't find a path to starting and whatnot, that makes you more intriguing having been at a school like that than you would be as just a three or four star high school recruit going there straight out of the gate. I, I mean, FCS schools would take them out of high school, certainly, but I don't think that they're going to just go straight there because if they have a chance to go to a power five school and compete for a starting job, they're going to take that first and know that, you know, going to a G five or, or an FCS school is always a fallback option, but good question. This question came in from skirt Mayo having multiple starters uh, miss significant time. This is about basketball, by the way, at the beginning of the season and costing us multiple wins that are losses cost us going into March madness. Spencer, is it a concern that we get plagued with injuries early in the season and never being close to full strength all season, whether it's multiple starters, bench players, or a combination of both missing significant time, whether it's the beginning of the season or throughout, let me know your thoughts. Sko Ducks. So this comes on the heels of Oregon's, uh, you know, disappointing, but not season ending loss on Sunday against Syracuse in which the Ducks had just seven scholarship players available. So the Ducks are currently seven and three. They have a couple of power five non-conference wins, but neither of them are against high level teams. So 
as they go throughout Pac-12 play on the men's side, and this applies to the women as well, they're going to need to pick up a lot of wins, and they'll have opportunities to do so against really good teams. But the question about the injuries is really frustrating. It's really frustrating because bigs still play such a big role in college basketball, more so than they do in the NBA. And for some reason, Oregon's been snake bitten with injuries. Now, part of that is, and Folly Dante has been around the Ducks for a long time, and he's been hampered with injuries his entire career. But Nate Biddle's currently hurt. And a couple of years ago, Frank Kepnong, who's at Washington and we could really use right now, he got hurt the last time he was with the Ducks and then went into the transfer portal. And that, that that's just... That's just some bad luck, but part of it is is also that, you know, when Folly Dante is still there and he's, you know, first team all conference when he's healthy and playing. But I think that for Oregon, it has absolutely been been brutal. Like this is not a slow start by Dana Altman standards. Their losses have been to a good Santa Clara team, my alma mater, at, at the mid-major level, uh, Alabama, who's an NCAA tournament caliber team. And Syracuse, who's also a Power 5 NCAA tournament uh, caliber program, and I think their team may very well be uh, this season as well. But if the big men are there, Oregon is no worse than 8-2, and two, and they're probably 9-1 and one because the defense has been a massive problem. The offense struggled on Sunday. Shellstad was you know, put out of sorts by a really good Syracuse defending guard. Happens to a true freshman. I'm not that worried about it. And then Keyshawn Bartholomew didn't play either. Like if you have seven scholarship guys available, this happened last year against, I think it was Villanova. And in Oregon, I I think actually won the game. They had like six scholarship players available. Maybe it was seven and Will Richardson went off. They might've actually lost, but it was, yeah, I remember it being a heck of an effort. It's frustrating. And, and, you know, I'm not panicked about it yet as it pertains to Oregon's tournament chances. I really want them to make make the tournament. I love March Madness. I want Oregon to be a part of it. I think they have a lot of things that you need to make a run in March Madness, but they have to have the bigs because Dana Altman's teams defensively have always been centered around having a big shot blocker in the middle. And when they're not there, it's absolutely crushing and Oregon can't stop a soul and teams are able to get inside. Then everyone collapses. That opens up shooters when there isn't a big shot blocking presence in there. And, you know, Mo Diawara is doing a heck of a job filling in, but he's supposed to be the number three big not the number one big. And I think that that is showing. And he was in foul trouble against Syracuse too. So when that happens, Oregon is now down to six scholarship players and thinking about playing Ryan Cooper, a walk-on big. Like that, that that's just not going to get you anywhere. And if Oregon gets healthy and Folly Dante is supposed to be reevaluated sometime later this week, if Oregon gets healthy going into Pac-12 play, they can be a really good team. They can be a 23 to 25 win team, I, I think, and they can do a lot of good things. But they have to get healthy. And if they don't, yeah, there, there's definitely a ceiling there. They still have a bunch of great guard play, which is vital in college basketball. But defensively, they need those bigs so badly uh, because they just are not able to have any defensive rhythm. It hurts them offensively, but really it's defensively. They can't get consistent stops and they allow too many easy buckets when they don't have their bigs on the floor. Great question. I love the men's basketball question. I'm always following along with that sort of stuff. Appreciate everyone listening. I will see you next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day and go Ducks.